The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The enemy we have to face down is inflation. You can't overstate how much a short-term mindset dominates Westminster. The cost of living crisis is not going away. It's very real for people. We've got to focus very much on the things that will really bring back growth. The UK has certainly been a very strong supporter of Ukraine from the outset. We have to stay the course to make sure inflation falls all the way back to the 2% target. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Stephen Carroll. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepke. So it's Wednesday. We would normally bring you Prime Minister's questions live, but we're sweeping all of that aside because today is all about economics. So Labour is launching its plan for Britain. The Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves making a big speech in Washington, D.C. this afternoon about what she's calling securonomics. It is the aim to make the UK more resilient, in her words, in the face of the shocks that we've seen recently over the last few years. It is Labour's big plan for the economy. Yeah, we caught up with her stateside when she was in Bloomberg's New York office. And if polls are to believe, Rachel Reeves is Britain's Chancellor in waiting. She's ex-Bank of England. She'd be the first woman to hold the job. And she's fighting with the Tories for the mantle of who is best for British business. We had a long conversation with her touching on growth, Brexit, pensions and why the city should back Labour. Take a listen to this. At the moment in the UK, that link between hard work and fair reward for too many families has been broken and at the same time our national economy is being buffeted around by a series of shocks to the global economy but finding it harder than others to recover uh, from those crises. And Securonomics is an approach that builds on the contributions of more people in more parts of Britain and with a a more secure national economy, uh, taking advantage of some of the big opportunities, but also ensuring our resilience, our strength and our security to give families that security that they desperately crave right now. How are you going to change the idea, though, that Britain is closed for business? Well, part of the reason for me being in New York uh, this week is to send the message loud and clear that with Labour, Britain will very much be open for business. I recognise the challenges that the UK economy uh, has gone through these last few years and also the political uncertainty. Three prime ministers and four chancellors last year, a botched Brexit deal that is not working uh, for British businesses or families and I am determined to put Britain back on a path where we're not just getting through but we're thriving and seizing the opportunities that are out there by working in partnership with business to secure those jobs in the industries of the future, good jobs, paying decent wages, offering that the security for families and that security for our national economy that we can be strong again. So you mentioned the botched Brexit deal. Does that mean you'd look again at rejoining the customs union and single market? Labour have been very clear. With a Labour government, we would not be rejoining the European Union, the single market 
or customs union. But there are practical changes to the Brexit deal that the Conservatives did uh, a, a couple of years ago to make it easier for British businesses to trade and export uh, to our nearest neighbours and trading partners. And it's one of the things that I've been talking to financial services firms here in New York about, because there are many things about the current deal that is not working well enough uh, for businesses and investors, and as a result is shortchanging us as a national economy. And so when that trade and cooperation uh, agreement with the European Union comes up uh, for um, some uh, um, opportunities to make changes in 2025, with Labour in government, we'll be using that as an opportunity to fix some of those uh, gaps. Uh, for example, uh, for our services sector, we want to secure the recognition of professional qualifications. We want our universities to be able to participate in the European Horizon scheme. We want a veterinary deal to reduce some of those backlogs at the border. And we want to help our cultural industries uh, to tour around Europe without the bureaucracy and the red tape that they face right now. We have huge potential as an economy in the UK, so many opportunities uh, to invest and grow, but we must seize those. And that includes sorting out some of the things that are holding us back because of that botched Brexit deal. What makes you think that the EU, the European Union, would negotiate in such a way, would look favourably on the UK? Isn't this just tinkering around the edges? Well, for the last, uh, well, um, since 2015, really, there has been an antagonistic relationship between Britain and the European Union. And Labour are determined to uh, normalise those relationships with our nearest neighbours and trading partners. Uh, we recognise the importance of European countries as export markets, but also the security partnership uh, between European uh, countries. And we believe, and through discussions that we have had with European leaders and ambassadors, that we can uh, build on that relationship, build on the uh, negotiations and the deal that was secured a couple of years ago, but make it work now for British businesses and the British economy, but also make it work better for the European Union, because Britain remains a big export market Rachel, for European countries. Rachel, can I interrupt countries. you and make the point that... Um, this is the message that has been given to the UK from government and from shadow leadership for years now. Why do you think that things are going to be different in the future and that this is going to suddenly be possible? Business doesn't believe it now. Well, actually, when I speak to businesses, they are desperate to see um, improvements to that trading relationship with Europe. And they are desperate to see a more normal relationship between Britain and our nearest neighbours and trading partners. And European capitals want to see that as well. And that is what you would get with a Labour government. We would treat our European counterparts with respect and we would work in partnership to fix some of these holes in the Brexit deal that was secured. There are a number of areas that were entirely missed out from uh, that Brexit deal. And we're determined to make sure it will work for the UK economy, for British businesses. But there are also ways to improve on that deal to make it work better for other European countries as well.
Rachel, on pensions, you've backed a £50 billion growth fund uh, using pension funds, but the Pensions and Lifetime Savings Association opposes any move that would take away full investment freedom from retirement schemes. Is, if these investments are so good, why aren't they being made already? Well, uh, there are a number of firms that have already welcomed what Labour is saying about the reforms to the uh, pensions landscape in the UK. At the moment, too many pension funds are not delivering good enough returns for pension savers. And we've got two trillion, two trillion pounds tied up in defined benefit pension schemes, half a trillion in defined contribution schemes. And we think that that money could work better for pension savers and better for the UK economy uh, by investing in some of those long-term growth opportunities, uh, particularly in start-up and scale-up businesses. You're seeing this happen in other countries and you're seeing as well British businesses looking across to uh, New York and to the US for funding because that long-term patient capital uh, doesn't exist in the same way in the UK. If we can unlock just a fraction of that money from UK pension schemes, we can get a better return for pension savers and also support those fast-growing industries in the UK and keep them in the mm. UK because at the moment, over the last few years, we've seen a, a sharp fall, something like an 84% uh, decline in the value of um, IPOs in London. Uh, and by reforming the way that our pension industry works, we believe that we can keep more of that business, more of those uh, uh, growth businesses in Britain, creating the good jobs and the wealth and prosperity that we need to see. Aren't we conflating those several different issues? One is growth, the other is what we do with pension investments. Here you're effectively pitching the Labour Party against investment managers and saying that Labour would be better at determining what people's pension funds are put to work in. Um, you know, on top of which, unlisted uh, companies, startup businesses carry significant risks. But if you um, talk to um, the people in the pensions industry, this is the sort of change that they want to see um, as well. Now, some of that is about the culture uh, in the industry. Some of it is about the regulation. But it also, it's about the reforms to the British Business Bank to help uh, pension funds uh, invest alongside the British Business Bank in some of those growth and, and start-up uh, potential. But, you know, I talked to some of the big insurance and pension funds. They want to see this change uh, because they know that it is a way to help grow the UK economy and get a better return uh, for investors. So this is going with the grain of the pensions industry rather than cutting across it. And the recommendations that um, I've been putting forward uh, this week um, um, gets a lot of support from the pensions industry, from the insurance industry, who are asking government uh, to work with them to deliver the sorts of reforms that we need to see to get better returns for pension savers and also help businesses access that long-term patient capital to help grow the UK economy. You'll see today the um, latest forecasts from the International Monetary Fund that show while Britain is now likely to avoid a recession this year, growth continues to just bump along the bottom. I'm so much more ambitious for Britain than that. Uh, under Labour, we want to secure the highest sustained growth in the G7 mm. with good jobs and productivity in all parts of the country. But that does mean doing things differently. It means making Britain the best place to start and grow a business. And that's what these reforms are all about.
So that was Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor there, uh, talking to us from the US. Look, Reeves uh, was fascinating. There's so much focus now on the Labour Party, given their polling lead on their economic policy in what will surely be a general election largely fought on you know, the economic basis of Britain, not just the negative, but mm. also whether there's a positive there's kind of vision. Yeah. I mean, look, you covered so much ground, I think, with Rachel Reeves as well. I, I was listening very keenly to, for her comments around the post-Brexit trade deal and mm. what changes the Labour Party wants to seek around that. So no single market or customs union. We, we'd heard that already. But this idea that they're very keen on, you know, getting into... Uh, the Horizon program, for example, for scientists. And uh, Caroline, you made the point to her that, you know, this is, requires the EU being interested in Willing, doing a closer yes. relationship. And, and the, the kind of the next thought that I have is is how much will a Labour government be willing to pay to join these schemes? Yeah, and not only that, but add up the economic benefits of more mutual recognition of professional qualifications, Horizon, cutting red tape for artists. And how much economic growth does that give? I mean, we've got an anemic economic growth in the UK. It kind of is a parallel to the argument about the fiscal constraints on any government when, you know, yes, they want to close the loophole on non-doms. They want to raise windfall taxes. Is that enough to cover Mm. the creaking holes in our infrastructure? Well, who better uh, to discuss this than our UK government reporter, Joe Mays, who joins us. Joe, thanks for your time. What stood out for you then? Yeah, I think you're right to say that We're all interested in what the big picture economic approach of Labour will be compared to what we currently have on the Conservatives. And Rachel Reeves in that interview, you can hear her like start to lay out where the differences will lie. I think the biggest one seems to be this activist state that she talks about and the desire for economic security, secure economics in her view. It seems like there's going to be a real dividing line of the election between one party saying the state should have a much more active role in supporting industries, whether that's through subsidies, whether it's through regulation versus a Conservative party. Party, which is philosophically more opposed to that. So that, it seems, will be a big, big choice of this, uh, at this election. I mean, Rachel Reeves isn't setting out very specific policies at this point. I mean, you, you did well to press her on the pensions issue. But that, that shows a, a case where, yes, Labour might end up you know, mandating pension funds to invest in national growth funds. That'll be a real shift from what we have currently. So that, that was my, my first big thought. And the second was on, on Brexit. I think, Lizzie, you're completely right to say that how much economic growth can Labour eke out from what is effectively uh, changing issues around the edges of the relationship with the EU, but not addressing the core issue, which is that being outside the single market and the customs union did erect significant trade barriers, which Richard Reeves is not talking about removing in, in that interview. So I think that, that, that's, that, 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 that's a very fair point. Yeah, I do wonder how different the government's approach would be from Labour's because you know they've just announced this billion-pound semiconductor strategy. Yes, Labour has criticised that for not being enough money. Yes, Rishi Sunak's warned about getting into a subsidy race with other G7 nations in response to the Inflation Reduction Act. But how much more money would Labour put into being this activist state? I do wonder. Joe, you were in Japan. You interviewed the Chancellor himself, Jeremy Hunt. How much water how much daylight do you see between the two actually when it comes down to the numbers? Yeah, we'll need to see the specific policies. And uh, like you say, a key question will be how much money does Labour have at its disposal? I think Labour's effective economic argument is we would get growth going to such an extent that we would have the money to pay for uh, whether it's better public services at NHS, whether it's uh, a more activist industrial policy. It's a slightly circular argument as in, you know, you need to get things going, which creates the money, which gives you more money to invest in the economy. Um, 
Um, so yeah, it, it's a tricky one. And Rachel Reeves herself has said, we will likely inherit a pretty you know, ropey economic situation, which we will have mm. to work with. So it'll be a question of scale, which party can put more money into these, these areas. Yes. It sounds like the optimism of Liz Truss, that we'll grow the economy so much that it'll pay for our tax cuts. Yes, but also, you've, you, I was just going to say, you've got to add to that, that it's there is a kind of moment, though, where it feels very zeitgeisty in the sense that Britain is sort of missing a big economic plan that the US has unveiled in terms of the green policy and the Inflation Reduction Act, but that many other countries have. I was reminded of it this morning in you know, Qatar's 2030 vision, for example, you know, it's going with the grain, isn't it? This idea that there needs to be much more kind of perhaps government intervention in, in a world that is more difficult, more dangerous, Joe. Yes. And I think what I find striking at the moment is the apparent lack of a ready strategy on the part of the UK government to these big issues. As in Jeremy Hunt says, you know, by the autumn, we'll have our response uh, you know, to to the Inflation Reduction Act or have something. But it feels like the UK is slightly late to the game on, on this issue. And I was thinking just this morning how I think the UK did spend a lot of the last, you know, seven years very consumed by you know, withdrawing itself from the European Union. That took a lot, a lot of capacity in Whitehall, a lot of political space. And I, I worry that the UK was slightly blindsided from perhaps bigger issues going on around the world and preparing for them. I think there's, and we're maybe slightly reaping that now, which is uh, which is not great. Joe, how significant is it that Rachel Rees is making all these announcements while in the US? Yeah, I think it's a real statement of intent. And I think that for our world with the city, I think she recognises that the city of London is under pressure from the likes of New York when it comes to you know listings, being a place where companies want to raise capital. And so, yeah, it's quite symbolic that she says, I'm coming here, I'm learning about what they do here. We need to fix that issue in the UK, have more patient capital, have more money going into growth industries. Yeah, I think that, that, that that's pretty significant. Um, yeah, for sure. Okay, Joe Mays, our political reporter, thank you so much for joining us uh, with your thoughts on those topics. So the latest inflation figures then for the UK have delivered an unpleasant surprise and one of the issues that the Labour Party is having to think about, as everyone else is, the pace of price rises did slow into single digits, that was expected, but the rate still immensely high, 8.7% in terms of inflation and core inflation uh, also high, sped up to 6.8% in April. Joining us now is our Bloomberg Senior UK economist, Dan Hansen. For the kind of today issues with the, with the economy, frankly, you know, uh, this is immediate, isn't it? What has gone wrong? Well, I, I'm waiting for the time that I can sit here and give you some good news about mm. inflation. It seems like we're in we're in Groundhog Day, but it, it was a bit of a shocker again this morning, a pretty big shocker, in fact. And I think we knew that we were, you've sort of mentioned it there. We, we knew we were going to get this big base effect on the energy price that was sort of baked in. And that's why the headline rate fell. But you're absolutely right to flag this this core inflation issue. And what what's really driving it? is sort of if you break down down the basket, you've got services inflation, which is the sort of domestic bit of inflation that responds to what's going on in the labour market. And that that is extremely strong at the moment, but it's not surprising hugely to the upside. What is surprising hugely to the upside is what's going on on the good side of the basket, so core goods inflation. And actually what's really interesting about that is all the things that further up the cost pipeline, if you look at all those things like shipping costs, if you look at supply constraint indicators, if you look at PPI, uh, producer price index, the producer price index, all those things point to an easing of inflation in core, uh, in core goods. But it's just not happening. So where does that lead you? Well, that leads you to a world where you think about 
how firms are pricing and their pricing strategy and inflation psychology. And it leads you to a, an argument about margins. And we, we talk about greedflation in, um, and that as a risk. But I think there is, there is evidence now and increasing evidence that you are getting this this margin push from firms, mm. that it's not just about the sort of cost pressures that are coming. There is this risk, I think, that is beginning to appear in the UK and inflation psychology has shifted slightly. That's interesting. So trying to get ahead then of what you see as price rises yeah. by putting yeah. up prices, right? Well, that's that, the margin that's, issue. That, yeah, exactly. And I think the thing, the thing to remember, there are two, there are two sort of schools of thought with it. One is that you've got a margin rebuild from the hit that's occurred from COVID and the hit through the cost of living or the peak of the cost of living crisis last year and firms are trying to rebuild their margins. The other the other thought is that firms now think instead of setting prices at 2%, I'm going to set them at 4%. And because demand's strong in the economy, I can get away with doing that. The Prime Minister's made having inflation by the end of the year one of his top priorities. Does that look less likely now? Uh, yes. It, it how, how less likely? <laughs> <laughs> so we we updated. So we had we had inflation at three and a half percent at the end of this year. So meeting it by quite a quite a wide margin. M- just mechanically updating our forecast based on what we've seen today, we've got inflation at four point two percent at the end of this year. So the the margin essentially with each inflation surprise continues to narrow and that sort of I, I sort of state that in a sort of mechanical way of updating your forecast rather than sort of taking account of this psychology issue that I'm talking about that I've been talking about previously so I think mm. you know I think the balance the, the what the Bank of England put out which was in their forecast which was it's about 50 50 chance of meeting that target that feels about in the right place to me so you mentioned psychology as a result of this inflation print, markets are now pricing for a peak Bank of England interest rate of 5.5%. Previously, they thought it was going to be 5%. I wonder where you see interest rates going, but also whether you actually reckon that the BOE would breach that 5% threshold. It seems to be something that psychologically the bank just does not want to do. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's a really good and important point and a, a big caveat. So we, I mean, based on this print, a June hike is is baked in. And actually, if you look at market pricing now, there is some probability the bank goes for 50 basis points. I think that's unlikely because it would just wreak a panic. But I think, you know, that it's not surprising that, that that's been priced in. We still think that will be the peak, but it's very clear the 4.75 will be the peak, but it's very clear which way the risks are with all of this. Um, the bank has got a very strong inflation forecast. Yes, they were surprised today, but actually going into the, the, the summer, they haven't got very big falls in inflation at all. So I think there is some chance that the forecast comes back in line. And I think that that could stay their hand. Mm. But at some point, and Lizzie, you sort of allude to this with your point about the 5%, the level matters just as much as the rate of change. And at some point, the bank is going to have to make a decision that is enough, similar to the Fed, that sort of enough is enough and the level of rates is enough to squeeze the economy because we've, we haven't seen the full yeah. effect of it yet at all. Well, that's it. I mean, um, it's sort of estimated that about two thirds of the rate hikes so far perhaps have not passed through into the UK economy. So bring it back to the kind of politics of it. You know, um, I see that the new, some of the newspapers you know, some of the news websites in the UK are cheering today about, you know, the drop in inflation has gone down below 10%. I kind of feel like maybe there's a point that is being missed here. And also, um, 
that that is not how it's going to be felt by voters, by individuals. And that mortgage rate, you know, that is going to pass through even to people who fixed a few years ago, it's going to start hitting people. Yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly, I mean, the cheer about the fall to to 8.7% is all about something that happened last year. You know, the fact that inflation fell was to do with the fact we had a 50, near 50% rise in energy prices in April 2022, and it's just a mechanical thing that's happened. Mm. If you look at sort of on a monthly basis, and I know we don't, Go get a bit into the weeds here, but you don't see we don't seasonally adjust the data here in the UK. But on a monthly basis, prices have risen significantly between March and April, and that's what, that's what people con- that's feel. what consumers mm. feel, mm. Um, and that is the that is the pain, and the pain is still there. And really, the the sort of big news today isn't about the fall; it's about the rising core inflation because that's what that's really what's happening beneath the surface. I think you're always very welcome in the weeds here with us, um, Dan, when we want to talk about things like that. I mean, look, the, the market reaction has, has been pretty brutal. We're talking about four hours now after the data was published. UK's borrowing costs have spiked the two-year yield up 24 basis points uh, at the moment. Um, how much of a problem is, is higher borrowing costs going to be for the UK government? Well, I mean, I heard your previous segment talking about what's sort of what Rachel Reeves is thinking about. You know, the, the broader picture on the UK and the fiscal UK fiscal position is that there is very, very little headroom that the government has to bring debt down as a share of GDP, whichever the government is, and presumably Labour will want to look to achieve that as well. There is very little headroom, and there is very little headroom based on an OBR forecast that is quite optimistic about the future um, and how much the economy can grow. Um, but in a world of, I would say, to use Lizzie's word, anemic growth, very high interest rates, it is very, very difficult to put the public finances onto a sustainable path. If your view of sustainability is to do with getting net debt falling, it's quite possible that they change the goalposts, of course. But what it means is if you want to do all this stuff, you're going to have to raise taxes to, to, to make it look like the public finances. To investors and sort of send the market the right signal, you're going to have to make sure that the book's balanced. So if you want to spend all the money, you're going to have to find it from somewhere. And it's not going to be through growth, I'm afraid. Okay, you heard it here first then. I mean, uh, with taxes already at highs that we haven't seen in sort of 50, 60 years, uh, I think that's quite a challenge then, sort of going back to that interview that we did, of course, with the Labour Shadow Chancellor. Dan Hansen, thank you so much for your time. Bloomberg Senior UK Economist taking us through the latest inflation data. That is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock. Our audio engineer was John Wasserman. I'm Caroline Hepke. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.